It's very good singing. Amen. Thank you for your encouragement tonight. Didn't even, couldn't even tell that all the youth left the room. So that's good. Just a side note, you know, if you ever want to purchase these, I think they're only around $15 a piece. It's just a great resource to have at home, by the way. Uh, we have it out often, and we're a singing family, and so we love to just take the truth that's uh, really accessible in these kind of songs and sing them. And uh, what a blessing that that song was for the sake of his name. And just to know that even as you were, are encouraging those in Argentina, right, from Pastor James this morning, um, we've had even a little hand in that song just because that was written by one of the former uh, assistant pastors here at Grace Church of Mentor, Pastor Chris. And so... Uh, just a blessing to know that at some level, uh, you all are influencing and, and having a great opportunity uh, for the greater cause of Jesus Christ globally. What a blessing that was this morning to hear that from Pastor James, wasn't it? I hope that was a real encouragement. He was holding us up to, to the Macedonian church. That's, <laughs> that's a pretty big... That's a pretty big uh, uh, comparison and uh, quite humbling, I would say. So as the Lord works, um, let's let's certainly allow Him to do that. Take your Bibles this evening and turn to Acts chapter four, and we're going to begin midway through in verse thirty-two. And we're going to actually read the passage this time. It's not too long, and so we'll read the whole passage through, so you can get a, a sense for where we are in our sensational first look at the church. And we'll find that there's nothing less sensational about this passage as have been some of the others. But nonetheless, as we look at sensational parts of our, as Pastor Kent mentioned, our church history, uh, we don't dismiss them, right? Oftentimes we can kind of dismiss sensational parts or sensational epics or eras of time and say, well... That's, that, that was then, that's, this is now. Uh, but really, it brings clarity to the, to the point that God is trying to get across. And we'll see that again here tonight. But Acts chapter 4 and verse 32. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And with great power... The apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them. For all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. Now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means sons of encouragement, and who owned a tract of land, sold it, and brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. And we're going to move into chapter 5. But, and that is a startling but, but it is a but nonetheless, but a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge. And bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the, proceed, uh, the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came over all who heard of it. The young men got up and covered him. And after, crying, uh, after carrying him out, they buried him. Now there elapsed an interval of about three hours, and his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter responded to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, Yes, that was the price. 
Then Peter said to her, Why is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out as well. And immediately she fell at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men carried in and found her dead. Excuse me, and the young men came in and found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard of these things. Boy, another sensational section in Acts tonight. Two deaths by an apostle. Right? Pretty, pretty crazy stuff. That doesn't happen, you know, as we kind of walk into our church and, and see those sort of things. It's this, this, is, this is, again, a sensational moment in the early church that will bring clarity to what God wants for His church this evening. And as I was thinking through this passage, you know, God has an ideal about the community called the church that He has formed. He has an idea of how it should exist, and that becomes pretty apparent here in Acts, doesn't it? I mean, God thinks that the purity of the church is pretty important, right? I mean, you can't walk away from this passage and, and, and see that God doesn't take his church and how conduct inside his church and the character that exists within his church, it does matter. And it is important. And throughout history, there have been men that have tried to create these perfect communities, these utopias, if you will. And one of, the, one of the most favorite examples of this that, that just immediately came to my mind is Walt Disney, which now Orlando, Florida, and the central uh, Florida area, you know, loves having Disney World. But at the very beginning, that was not Walt's dream for that place. In fact, uh, that place is exempt from federal, from most federal most state and most local laws because he kind of finagled buying up this land and then, and then, and then trying, to, trying to really have its own charter and its own uh, legal umbrella so that they could do whatever they wanted in Walt Disney World. And it wasn't even going to be Walt Disney World. Right? For those of you who may know the history, uh, it really does start with the experimental prototype community of tomorrow which we know as Tomorrowland or Epcot, the Epcot Center, Exper Experimental Prototype Community of Tomorrow. That isn't, you know, a marketing uh, favorite, <laughs> so they reduced it down to Epcot and just made, uh, you know, it's a small world after all songs and, and stuff to kind of sell it. But his vision for the, the land that he had purchased in Orlando outside of Orlando, was really this experimental utopia community of tomorrow. It would never stop growing, it would never stop changing, and it would always be producing and influencing and experimenting with the latest and greatest technologies unto a perfect community. And uh, 1960s is kind of when Walt was dreaming this up, and, and he really had quite a few grandchildren running around, and he was... He was, he was outspoken about the, the craziness of the city and the busyness of the city and the disorganized structure that he saw in the city and, and the dirtiness and the crime. And, and he saw a problem and he thought that if, if we kind of form this community and we uh, experiment and try to really bring in, he was going to have all these companies come in and, and experiment with technology and, and try to have a living breathing, self-sustaining, autonomous, even almost from the, from the government, community that, that would be able to, to be a model, a dream community. And, you know, Disney died, and his dream really never came to fruition. In fact, the board thought, well, without Walt Disney, this is crazy, we're not going to be able to do this. And the only reason why Walt Disney World exists is because Roy, Walt's brother, stepped in and said, no, we've got to do something. And so uh, Magic Kingdom was born. 
and 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 now the the craziness of Walt Disney World. In fact, there was there was something that I read recently about kind of a spin off of Disney's idea to have a, 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 a utopia-like society. And Disney sort of did this on, in a, on a resort level and in a community level, and they called it Celebration. I don't know if, if, if you follow Walt, uh, Walt, uh, Walt Disney World, that there's a, there's, a little, there's a little town celebration, and it is <clears throat> kind of self-sustaining. And, and the interesting thing is, as someone pointed out recently, that as... as Utopia-like as, as they were trying to get it, even the great Imagineers of Walt Disney. Uh, there were, there were, I think in the last there was a there was a hostage situation in one and a murder in another home, and so even even there, there is chaos and there is confusion, and ultimately we would call that sin, the reality of sin. So this perfect community. Well, uh, many commentators in the book of Acts may wrestle with, with Luke's trying to picture perfect paint the church. Right? You think about all the, the, the salvation that's been happening in the book of Acts, and you think about the great, the great uh, uh, Holy Spirit presence in the book of Acts to the church, and, and you see all these things are working well together, but... But Luke is not trying to paint a picture-perfect picture of the church. In fact, if we really think about it, already to this point, the leaders of the church have been imprisoned for their faith. They've been banned from publicly speaking Jesus Christ crucified and risen. And now we get to the fate of Ananias and Sapphira, in chapter 5. And so, the church is far from perfect, but what we ought to see from the, from the larger than life, our life, kind of example, from the sensational view that Luke kind of allows us to look into, into the early church, we see that God cares about the purity of the church. God cares about the people's character inside that make up the church. And so as we take the outline of Acts chapter 1, verse 8, and you will be my witnesses and you will receive power, and after that, go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost, we see that faithful witnesses, and here's a, two pro, excuse me, a two-pronged uh, outline tonight of this little passage Faithful witnesses will exemplify and they will protect the purity of the church. Exemplify and protect the purity of the church. And that's really what Luke is trying to hammer home through the Holy Spirit, or really the Holy Spirit through Luke. And as we look at verse 32, we see, and the congregation of those who believed. Here we're going to see the example of unity throughout the church. And we look at this word congregation, and this word congregation is really an informal word, an informal group of people. It's not the, the church proper yet that, that we'll see here in a little bit, but it is just a multitude. It is a crowd. It's kind of like, uh, you know, the, the Cavs parade. It's all kinds of people that went to the Cavs parade. It's, it's, a, it's a large group of people, a large indiscriminate group of people. But then Luke narrows it down a little bit. He says, of those who believed, and so we're talking about those who are believers. And we need to stop and consider this large group who believed. We need to consider the makeup. Acts has given us to, to date a pretty specific makeup of who is this large crowd of people that have gathered together that believe in Jesus Christ. And if you think about the three sermons that we've investigated so far, Pastor Mike preached through one in Acts chapter 2, Peter preaching in Pentecost, and then we looked at really two sermons, one 
after the lame man was healed, and then one after Peter and John were in prison for the evening, and he's before the Sanhedrin. And each time, if you go back and you look at who he addresses, he addresses a specific group of people. He's preaching to a crowd with a name. And the name is you men of Israel in Acts chapter 2. You men of Israel in Acts chapter 3. You rulers of the people of Israel. He's speaking to the Jews. Acts chapter 1 verse 8 is in play here. right? You'll be my witnesses. And the first place you're going to witness is where? Jerusalem. And there's no better place, there's no central location to go than the temple. That's really where we find ourselves in the early church. And so they're looking, uh, or excuse me, these, this congregation of believers is mostly converted Jews. These are people that believe in Jesus Christ now, risen from the dead, but come from a Jewish faith orientation. Okay? It's pretty simple. I don't think that's stunning for anybody in here. But I think what is sort of stunning about the early church is if we kind of unpeel a little bit more of who these converted Jews were, we see that uh, they were pri- there, many of them were proselytites. Many of them were Jews not from Jerusalem. Many of them weren't even Jews by birth. They were Jews by conversion. If you take your Bibles and go to Acts chapter 2, just a few ver- uh, chapters back. And here we have the incident at Pentecost where there's a multitude speaking in tongues. And we're told very clearly that this group of people ought not to understand each other. There's so many different national backgrounds. There's so many different tongues, language tongues here that they were so impressed. Acts chapter 2 and verse 5. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when the sound occurred, the Holy Spirit, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthenians. Now just look at how many different, Luke just lists a few of who's Parthenians, Medes, Elamites, the residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phygeria, and Pamphylia, and Egypt, and districts of Libya, and Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes. So we just get a pretty clear picture right away, that not all the Jews were Jews by birth necessarily or Jews by Jerusalem orientation, to be even more precise. But they were Jews that came from all over who ended up at the temple when the Holy Spirit and Peter started preaching, and these were Jews that came to the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is significant because while this group is incredibly, and can we, can we say just incredibly diverse, incredibly diverse, they are now a distinct group of people in Jesus Christ. And this explains this diversity in, this, in, in the reality that there are, so many, there are so many people outside of their homeland here in Jerusalem. This explains why there was such a great need in verse 34. Go back to Acts chapter 4 with me and verse 34. In verse 34, Luke says, For there was not a needy person among them, which means that there was a needy person and the need had been met, or he wouldn't have brought it up. Why was there a great need in the new church? Because there were, there were recently converted to Christ Jews from all over. And what I mean all over, I mean not, not within walking, a day's walking distance of Jerusalem. Not within a day's walking distance of the temple. And so what we find ourselves in is we have a large part of the church that's transitory. We have a large part of the church that's homeless if they're going to stay in Jerusalem. We have a large part of the church 
that doesn't have a job. They're unemployed. Okay, and that's important for us to note because this is a sensational part of the church's history. We, we live and work in our community. We each have homes in our community. And so, that, so the, the need of Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter 5 is not the same need of, of, of our dispensation in our church here today. But as, as, as uh, maybe we could say hyperbolic or hyperbole as, or as exaggerated as this situation is, we can still see what God is trying to get across as a timeless principle to us today. That is, God cares about is the purity of the church, and we'll see that. So there's an incredible distinct group of people, but, there's, but they're, from, they're, they're from all over. Uh, they're visitors from Rome. They're, they're converted Jews that are now converted to Christ and if you think about the number for a second, if, if you kind of tally up what we've seen in terms of salvation so far, we, we easily can exceed 10,000 people in the church. And, 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 and most people, and I would agree probably, it's over 20,000 easily when you consider men, women, and children, households that came to know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. And so we're talking about a large crowd of people, and the majority of which have some great physical needs. And so there was uh, many cultures, many tongues, many backgrounds, but consider for a second just the absolute reality of the example of unity that we find ourselves in. With with such a pluralistic, in in a cultural sense, with, with, with such a diversity and, and not even understanding and appreciating other cultures. Now they're coming around and they're gathering and, and with, look at verse 32, with one heart and one soul. Literally, a heart of one and a soul or a mind of one. And we can just pause for a second and rewind to this morning's message. When Pastor Kent talked about heart, the whole heart after God. We don't really, I don't really have to explain the heart here, do I? That is the essence. And, and this is actually an Old Testament formula when we consider one heart and soul. The heart and soul after God. And so it says with great resolute, with great uh, uh, yearning and a complete and a whole devotion to God, a unity of heart and soul. So it's remarkable when you consider the makeup of this congregation and the unity that was achieved in the Spirit of God. That's a remarkable thing. We could just stop and, and be blessed, I think, right there of just the unity that the Spirit gives regardless of classes, distinctions, or origins. And it is true, and it is real. And it looks like something. And so Luke describes, and not one of them, verse 32, claimed that anything belonged to him was his own. But all things were common property to them. You know, the first thing that jumps out at me was when I read that. No, not communism. We'll talk about that in a second. The, the reality, this unity was so real and so true and so genuine and it's so, of such one mind and one heart and it was based in a true and real and authentic God that they understood that the God of heaven who created everything and really has true ownership of everything gave them stuff and they didn't, they didn't, they didn't grab onto it too firmly. They let it go. In fact, they didn't grab onto it at all. If someone needed it, it was theirs so that they could help. And so the question does come up, okay, this, corner, this, this, this could almost be a little bit of a proof, proof text if we take it out of context for, for communism, a system in which goods and, and services are, are kind of avail, available to the greater. And again, 
Uh, remember, as we look at Acts, as we look at the sensational reality of the, of the birth of the church, we're not really looking at prescription, we're looking at description here. And we already saw that we don't fit this, we're not apples to apples with the context of the believers of the very first few hours and weeks and months of the church. There was something special going on here. But even more than that, uh, the text does not say that there was no ownership of property. In fact, the text is very clear that there was ownership of property, which would be against any kind of communistic or socialistic uh, uh, thoughts. Look at verse 36. We have Barnabas. He owned a tract of land. And he was a servant, an example here. And so if he was an example, and yet you shouldn't own land, this is probably a bad ex- person to bring up. Right? It's true in Ananias and Sapphira's case in chapter 5. Ananias and Sapphira uh, are, are not, are not uh, chastised, are not disciplined, are not called out because they didn't give their land or, or, or because... Uh, because they even had to do it, and they didn't do it willingly. You understand that? They, they, it's not like someone twisted their arm to give up their, this property. There was a whole other issue that the Spirit of God had with Ananias and Sapphira. They tried to manipulate and show themselves greater than what they were. They were it was more about them than it was about the needs of the church, and we'll see that. Here in a little bit. And so there really is no communistic agenda. This wasn't compulsory. This wasn't mandatory by any stretch of imagination. Let's just go to Acts chapter 12 just so that uh, we can uh, dispel this from any thoughts that we might have. Acts chapter 12, we find ourselves in another sensational part of the book where Peter is arrested. James uh, is put to death. And Peter's in prison. And uh, we know the great jailbreak by the only one who can rightfully jailbreak anybody out of prison. And so he sends an angel, and, uh, and, uh, and Peter's thinking he's dreaming, he has no clue. And, and finally, Peter, you know, kind of slaps himself and says, okay, this is real, uh, I better get out of here. And in verse 11 of chapter 12, when Peter came to his senses, when he came to himself, you know, he couldn't believe what was happening, he said... Now I know for sure that the Lord has sent forth his angel. Again, Peter's trying to talk himself that this is really the case and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. And look at verse 12. And when he realized this, he went to the, owned a house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called John Mark. And so at this point, we understand that Mary did not give up her home. It was, not, it was not something that all believers had to do. And as we look at uh, this, this great example from Barnabas, we see here that uh, this was probably uh, land that was extra. These were probably homes or assets that were extra. In other words, there's no, there's no point to sell off everything that I have and then become... And to need myself. That's not what the Spirit of God's advocating here either. It's just common sense. How can I help those in need? And so, uh, and so we have this great unity of one soul and one mind here in this first book of the church. There was great unity because there was a great focus on the witness for Christ And that's the next thing that we see. So not only do we see the example of unity here, but we see the example of the trust in the ministry of the Word of God. In verse 33, we see, And with great power the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. They were preaching the Word of God, my friends. The apostles had an effective ministry because their ministry was based on the man, Jesus Christ, the Word of God. And so there was great power. It's not surprising. When you do ministry God's way, through God's book, there's going to be great power. 
and then there's going to be great results. Abundant grace was upon them all. And so it wasn't hard for the early church to trust their leadership because their leadership was in the right place. Their their leadership was focused on witnessing and testifying to the risen Lord. And so that is certainly our task at hand for us. The example of trust. The leaders were entrusted to preach the word of God and those who followed trusted them because they preached the word of God. And so churches don't have to split. This is in my mind constantly because of our era here at Grace Church. They don't have to split over building projects, do they? Not if we do it God's way in God's time with God's wisdom. Churches don't have to split over chairs or pews or over colors. And that seems silly, but I think we all know of churches that have done that. They don't have to split over versions. They don't have to split over music and over styles. If things are based on the word of God, there's nothing to split over. Isn't that the beautiful thought? It's a simple thought. It's a thought that rings clear in the first hours, minutes, weeks, and months of the church. And why was there effective ministry? Because there was an effective ministry of the Word of God. And look at the action again. Luke says, okay, they trusted in their leadership. It's an example to be holding for sure. And what does that look like? Well, there weren't needy people among them, verse 34. And in verse 35, if, there, if, there, if and when needy people showed up and there, was a, and there was a need, and that's actually in the language in the Greek, we don't really have time to talk about this, but, but this selling of homes was all based on the need that came in. So I didn't sell my house if I didn't have to. I sold my house when I saw that there was a need to. And so as needs came up, they laid these things. Isn't this beautiful? The example of trust in the leadership because leadership follows Jesus Christ. They laid these things at the apostles' feet. There were no strings attached. There were no, you can have this if. Boy, haven't we heard stories? Right, of pastors who are willing to do the if. Not here, my friends. And not when the ministry is based on the Word of God. Right? It doesn't mean that it has to be my way. It's at the apostles' feet for the apostles to have their way. It doesn't mean, okay, you can have this if I benefit in some way. You know, I'm willing to give because I have children, or I'm willing to give because I want to play basketball, or whatever the silly need might be. But there was a real trust in the leadership. And I would say that even too here, there was a trust in the administration of it. And, and we'll, we'll kind of fast forward to Acts chapter 6, and, and the apostles are going to be the first ones to say that there was, there was way too much to do, right? It's a little preview, right, in Acts chapter. There was way too much to do to, to administrate the needs, the physical needs of the church, and to administrate the, and, and to, to, to focus on the spiritual needs. And, and so the apostles, over time, they, they realize they're really not the best at this. Now, I think that there's no one better underneath the inspiration of the Holy Spirit at this time than the apostles as they follow God through the Word of God. But, uh, but, but even still, we, we understand that there was a central place that needs were brought, and there was a central place that needs were filled. There was organization, there was administration, and there's nothing wrong with that. And to God's, to God's own purposes, he, He's... He's even allowed us to have a, a, a group of deacons and elders that function in that capacity here. And so there's just a little plug that as needs are, needs are real, let the elders know so that we can function in this New Testament operation to fill needs in the most uh, 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 expedient and, and biblical way. And then we have the example not only 
of the trust in, in the word of God and, and of, the, of the leadership of the church. But then we have the servant leader example, I call it. Now, Joseph. Joseph, verse 36, uh, after Simon was one of the most popular names. You know, you kind of search names. We're doing that. We're trying to figure out a name for, for Stella's sister. And, and uh, you know, you, you kind of look, oh, no, that name's way too popular. We don't want to do that name. Oh, no, everybody names that. Oh, no, there's four of them in, in this church. No, we can't do that. Well, Joseph was one of those where he said Joseph, and half the church turned around and said yes. <laughs> you know, I mean. So they gave him a nickname, Barnabas, son of encouragement, son of exhortation. There's some, there's some speculation here as to how exactly we translate this. Uh, so Luke, Luke gives us this, but Barnabas, how, how do we arrive? Well, maybe son of prophet would be a good, so son of prophet. He was a preacher. He was an encourager. He was an exhorter. And so uh, that name certainly fits a good nickname for this Levite. Interesting. Luke brings that up. And in the Old Testament, if, if we remember, Levites, they, they, they couldn't own land. They couldn't have property. But obviously that goes by the wayside by this time in, in the intertestamental period. And so uh, Levites are actually quite well off, most of them, and have quite a bit of assets. And so apparently Barnabas fit into that portion. It's interesting that he too was not originally a, a, at least a maybe a Jew, but not originally um, from Jerusalem. He was from Cyprus. And so he maybe was in the same boat. We don't know. We don't know a whole lot uh, uh, before this, but, but he maybe was in the same boat where he didn't have a home here in, in, in the Jerusalem context. Maybe his lot that he sold was inside. We don't know. But it just goes to show you the, the makeup of the new church. And so Barnabas and uh, He's a great servant leader example because in verse 37 it says, and, when, and who owned a tract of land, sold it, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So of all those who uh, were, were giving to the needs, uh, Barnabas is certainly a, a favorite example of Luke as we read through Acts. Uh, outside of Peter and Paul, Barnabas is, is probably mentioned third in the book, of, he's, he's highly mentioned. You know, he cares for the needs here of the church. Uh, he, he welcomes Paul when others are skeptical, right? He encourages Paul. He's alongside him. He, he goes out and does missions work. Is it any wonder that the community did so well with people like Barnabas to hold up and to say, this is an example to follow? So faithful witnesses... Uh, exemplify purity in the church, and Barnabas is certainly one, not a perfect man, but a man that certainly is exemplified here for his servant leadership, for not just talking the talk, but walking the walk. And so Barnabas has mentioned the church, uh, like I said, may seem like it's so perfect, right? seemingly thousands saved, the Holy Spirit freely working. But as I mentioned before, remember, Peter, John are already imprisoned. And there were possibly thousands initially homeless in the church and unemployed until the needs are met. And they were. And as we move into the next section, keep in mind that Luke isn't presenting a, a perfect church. But he is presenting the desire of the holy God to have a pure church. And so we have a faithful witness uh, doesn't just exemplify that kind of purity through uh, trust in its leadership and in the Word of God and and through uh, and through you know the the faithful example of of men like uh, uh, Barnabas, uh, but faithful witnesses protect the purity of the church, and so we see that primarily through Peter's example here. And and make no mistake about it, Peter is acting. I believe underneath the Holy Spirit's inspiration, he is, he is really taking on the role here of a prophet. He can read minds and hearts at this point in this, in this narrative okay, as we go on. And, and that explains why I don't think Luke really records anything. Luke doesn't record a thing Ananias says, if Ananias even says anything. 
I mean, we know he does. We know he, he says, this is how much I got from my property. Right? But, but it's interesting, Luke doesn't even record Ananias' words. It does record a little bit of Sapphira's words. So you can, you can, you know, make a joke about wives always talking more than men. I don't know if you want to. I wouldn't do that at all. Not me. No, no, no. But, uh, all right, that was a bad joke. Most of you are, are fall victim to that part of the joke. So I won't, won't go there. So faithful witnesses protect the purity of the church. Right? And we see really the, the, the nature of the purity here. But a man, verse 1, named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property like Barnabas and kept back some of the price for himself, unlike Barnabas. With his wife's full knowledge and bringing a portion of it, he too, like Barnabas and the others, laid it at the apostles' feet. And so, first of all, we see that Ananias kept back some. Just some. Right? After all, it seems like uh, this, is, this is pretty impressive. Ananias took property that he had, and, and assuming it must have been probably, because it's brought up here, and because Ananias and Sapphira are really flaunting it, it must have been a considerable amount. We can only speculate. We're not told. But it was kind of the, wow, that's a lot of needs met, Ananias, Sapphira. It's actually interesting. It's the same verb form, at least in the lexicon, uh, lexicon that um, is used uh, with Achan's act and holding back the spoil from Jericho in Joshua chapter 7. It's really a, a verb here of financial fraud, if you will. And, and it's not that they kept back some that's the problem. But as the text makes painfully obvious, he goes on in verse 3 to, to lie and to say this is how much we got the property for when really they got the property for more than what they're saying and they're keeping some. And so that is really the issue at hand. And we're not even we're not told that that Barnabas gave all that he sold. We're not told that. But he gave and he gave it transparently. And we're not told that if they sold everything that they had to give everything. We're not told that here. What we're told is that Ananias and Sapphira together lied about it. A simple lie, Ananias. Really? That's how pure God wants his church. I mean, think about the reality of Jesus Christ for a second. Right? I mean, they are, they are witnesses to that reality. Right? They're standing there a few months into these things, knowing that Jesus Christ exemplified the absolute selfless act of giving all, all that he had. Think about the humility. And think about Paul's comments in Philippians chapter 2 regarding Christ. In verse 3, Paul says this, pointing to Christ and what he did, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Think about that. They saw that full well from the Savior himself. Do nothing from selfishness or from conceit, but do everything, right? Everything to regard others as more important. Think about that. And so... They're, they're flaunting around saying, hey, this is what we've done. This is what we have. This is what we've given. Aren't we great? And that motivation is made clear because they even try to exaggerate that through the tongue and misrepresent what their heart really is. And so, my friends, right, 
Purity is absolute. It is, it is, it is, it is presented here in black and white. As black and white as 1 John presents the purity that God expects from his. And we see that purity is attacked. Look at verse 3. Peter says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? That's interesting. So many people say, well, maybe, probably Ananias and Sapphira weren't saved. You know, I'm not going to go that far. I don't necessarily see that here in this text. I don't, I don't view this as Satan uh, uh, possessed them. Okay. Because I think Luke sort of clarifies it, and he says, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And by the way, where, where did the source of all lies first come from? Right. So I think Luke is kind of pointing back all the way to Genesis chapter 3 a little bit here. And he's saying Satan is the father of lies. He is, he is the liar. He is the one. Right. So how in the world could you let Satan get in there? The purity of the church, Ananias. And then uh, we're told in verse 4, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? In other words, you weren't, this was your property. You didn't have to do this. And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? Boy, that's James chapter 1, isn't it? And when uh, uh, when temptation, right, is it lost, conceived, and, 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 and gives birth to sin, that's James chapter 1. And so Satan isn't the first and foremost the problem, though he is walking around looking to devour. That is true. But here, right, Luke gets right to the heart, Peter does, and says, you have conceived this in your heart. You have done this thing. Our own heart seeks to attack uh, the purity that God has for us. And Satan walks around looking to, really looking to uh, latch on and, 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 and bring great strongholds into that attack. And we may ask ourselves, you know, in the early church, how in the world did this happen, Ananias? No doubt saw or at least heard the testimony from secondhand of the Lord Jesus Christ. You saw the great workings at Pentecost and Peter's boldness before the Sanhedrin and thousands upon thousands and, and many giving up their own property so that the church itself could be free of physical need so it can be free to minister spiritual need. Ananias, how in the world, Sapphira, how in the world could you two together do this? thinking through that, trying to maybe answer this for myself. What are the, what are the reasons? And, and, I, and I, think, I think somewhere along the way, Ananias and Sapphira really started to do this thing called church in their own strength. And, and even though it was new, and even though there was a lot of sensationalism there, there was a shallowness to their relationship with the Lord. And I think that that's abundant because if you go back to verse number 33 in chapter 4 and you look at the great power the apostles were giving testimony of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and I want you to connect that with the, with the response of the people. Right? The, the apostles ministered the Word of God with great power, and there's abundant grace. Right? So that is, that, is this, that, is this, that is uplifting the Word of God here. Okay? That is the ministry of the Word of God in the new church. The centrality of it. That's why we're here today. We're around the Word of God tonight. And look at the response. Look at what people did. Verse 35, they laid the, the, the thing, uh, whatever, at the apostles' feet. Verse 37, Barnabas laid the assets at the apostles' feet. In verse 2, what did Adonis and Sapphira do? They laid these things at the apostles' feet. But yet for them, the Word of God wasn't enough. For them, the Word of God wasn't kind of like what Pastor Kent preached about this morning and, and the heart, the whole heart, and waking up. And what a beautiful picture. Wasn't that this morning? A convicting picture of God just sitting there 
wherever you walk into, whatever room, with his, you know, heavenly cup of joe, right? And saying, I'm ready. I'm ready to talk. That's, that's the ministry of the Word of God here, again here this evening. And so Ananias and Sapphira, they, they lied and they just pretended really to lay at the apostles' feet. But, but it wasn't true for them. It wasn't enough. They wanted the attention and the esteem of all those who surrounded them. And so there's a seriousness of purity that we see. Peter's acting as a prophet, as I, met, as I mentioned, directly intervening, directly calling out Ananias's heart, unlike anyone ever could, with great authority and great precision. And he says, Ananias, your problem is you're lying. And you know, the seriousness is tied to who he's lying to. Because at face value, he's lying to the church. But my friends, that is the beauty of the purity of the church. Look with me at verse 4, the end of verse 4, right? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to merely the church, to men, but to God himself. Why does God take the purity of the church so seriously? Because he exists here. Because he is building her. This is a place of purity, the church. But it even starts before we gather together, doesn't it? With Ananias and Sapphira, it started long before they gathered to lay at the apostles' feet that which they brought. It started long before in their heart. It started long before as they departed from the word of God, the instruction and the testimony of the resurrected Jesus Christ. So the place of purity starts inside our heart. And it is to be guarded here in our church. So the example of purity and not the example, but the protection of purity is for us to consider tonight. Churches focus on entertaining people, don't they? They focus on uh, either being a social club or a kinder care or a rock concert or, or however a church may focus. But God cares about the purity of the church. And the purity of the church is tremendously important here. I mean, Ananias and Sapphira both carried out because they had a disregard for the purity of who God is in the church. And so, you know, closing, let's just take our Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 5. And as society norms continue to degrade and downgrade and become more deviant, as things in our culture become more and more acceptable... You know, everything from extramarital sex, homosexuality, gender, whatever, nudity showing up, even in, in, in PG-13 kind of uh, uh, ratings on TV, or at the beaches, or even in advertisements. We could go on and on, couldn't we, tonight? But it cannot become commonplace in your heart. And it cannot become commonplace in the church. God cares about the unity and the purity of the church. And so we see that outlined here in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. What a beautiful picture that is. An even more beautiful picture for the husband is to be the head of the wife as Christ is also the head of the church as he himself being the savior of the body. So we're to give husbands ourselves like Christ to the church. But as the church is subject to Christ, also wives ought to be their husbands and everything. Verse 25, here we go. Uh, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. 
so that he might sanctify her, that she might be pure. Having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot, wrinkle, or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. And Paul ends this way in verse 32. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. The church is to be pure, and the importance of purity is paramount. And we see that here at the beginning of the church. And so tonight, for you and for me, where is your heart? It starts in the individual heart of those priest believers that make up this thing called the church. We're to be in the world, but not of it. We know that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Everywhere you turn, Satan is working and looking to devour your purity. Doesn't matter how old you are or how young you are. It quite frankly just doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're married or if you're not married. My friends, you and I today ought to be examples of the purity in the church and we ought to be consumed with protecting the purity of the church. And it has to start with you and with me. And let me just give a little plug. We didn't get there tonight. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul is consumed too with the purity of the church. And he gives maybe a little less sensational, but but nonetheless powerful example of those who refuse to be right and pure inside the church. And remember he says some of them have fallen away. They have slept. Some of them are sick. And he's talking about them gathering around the Lord's table, confessing who the Lord is, and remembering what he has done for the church. And so as we gather, it is for you and for me to take, to take great breath and, and great, great encouragement to remain pure and, 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 and to continue in purity. And for those of us who have fallen away, uh, aren't we so glad that the Apostle Peter underneath the Holy Spirit is not sitting here uh, asking you the question and young men waiting for you to, be car- uh, to carry you out of this place. And so God is gracious and God is merciful. And make no mistake about it, this man up here knows God's grace and God's mercy. But to know that God is all, in, all consumed with the important subject of purity in his people and in this place called the church. Father, tonight I pray that you would uh, you'd really uh, just work in our hearts tonight that the word of God would go forth and, and that we would confess tonight that apart from Jesus Christ, we fail miserably in this thing called purity as you define it. And Lord, uh, we even confess tonight that in our flesh we, we wrestle just like Paul did in Romans chapter 7. But Father, the, uh, this, this sensational example that you give from the early church is all the more clear for us today that the echoes of truth ring down throughout the ages, you care about the character of your people. And so I pray that as you continue to transform us into likeness of your Son, that you would do that here at Grace Church of Mentor, not just for today, but until you come. And I pray tonight for those who may be sitting here and they may 
there may be a, a part of, of their life that the Holy Spirit tonight has said, the Word of God does not rule and reign here. Tonight I pray that they would get with you and confess those sins. Tonight I pray that they would center their heart and their life around the Word of God and that they would seek out accountability in their spouse and in the disciple-making culture that we have here so that you will be pleased to raise them up as an example and as a protector of the purity of this place. Because ultimately that is the goal that your Son has for us all. And that is why He made His tremendous sacrifice. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.